Welcome back to Marvel by the Month, a weekly podcast about the history of Marvel Comics. My name is Brian Stratton. And I am Rob Milne. And we are very excited to have you back here for February 1963. Um, We're going to be talking about four Marvel Comics today. Um, And what are those four Marvel Comics, Rob? Those are Fantastic Four, number 11, Journey into Mystery, number 89, Strange Tales, number 105, and Tales to Astonish, number 40. Yeah, so we'll be uh, following the adventures of the Fantastic Four, uh, the Mighty Thor, the Human Torch in solo action, and the one and only Ant-Man. Um, these comics were all uh, on the newsstands in December of 1962. So let's talk a little bit about what was going on in 1962 and set the stage. On December 2nd, 1962, uh, a week of severe smog began in London, and it wound up killing over 100 people in four days uh, and hospitalized over 1,000, which is kind of insane. Like, I don't think I'd ever heard of this before doing research for this episode. That puts a new spin on the London fog, like the deadly London fog. Seriously. And I was actually wondering, I need to do a little bit more research, but... um, whether or not is that where we get the london fog from i mean is that this like killing smog thing i always thought it was just the natural fog like san francisco bay san francisco's fog i you know i just thought they had fog but maybe it's deadly yeah who knows um there's really no way to tell we're not connected to a source of infinite information that we can just access at any moment and then uh, about a week later uh on the 8th of december um the New York City newspaper strike began um, with the walkout of international typographical union members from their printing jobs, and all of the city's major newspapers uh, stopped production. Um, and at that, at that time, there were nine different papers. Um, so, uh, you know, this is something that obviously, with uh, all the Marvel staff being headquartered in New York um, and all their comics taking place in New York, this is a you know a little bit of what was going on in New York at the time. We also have on the fourteenth of December. The U.S. spacecraft Mariner 2 flew by Venus. So that's some, uh, that's, that became the first probe to successfully transmit data from another planet. And it kind of squashed the dreams of everyone who thought there was going to be some crazy sea monkey life over there on Venus. Yeah, I'm sure uh, Ray Bradbury cried a single tear that day, but, um, you know, he was doing all right for himself. Yeah, they figured out that the temperature, uh, on the on the surface of the planet was 900 degrees Fahrenheit, so not exactly habitable for uh, Earth-like people. Yeah, that probably was not going to be an option. Um, but it just goes to show that you know the space race and space exploration were ongoing um, and would continue to be throughout the 60s. And uh, it wouldn't be an episode of. Uh Marvel by the month if we didn't talk about what the Soviet Union was up to. So uh, this is kind of crazy. On the 19th of December, just six days before Christmas, uh, the Soviet Union agreed for the first time to allow American inspections of its nuclear sites uh, as part of a mutual bargain for each nation to verify the nuclear capability of the other, um, which is great. Um, Unfortunately... (laughs) 
uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, sent a letter to uh, President Kennedy, um, and he offered uh, two or three annual on-site inspections, um, which the U.S. wound up uh, rejecting nine days later um, because they wanted eight or nine. Uh, so this put a slight delay um, in nuclear inspections um, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, and by slight delay, I mean that no inspections took place at all until 1988. And so. it kept the doomsday clock just right there, you know, for, for New Year's Eve, too. Yeah, because yeah. God forbid we should, you know, back off from that threat even slightly. I almost tried a Russian accent just now. Like, Merry <laughs> Christmas accent. It's not going to happen. I was, it's going to end with comrade. Anyway. Oh, and uh, on the 22nd of December, uh, for the first time, a song by a British band reached number one on the American singles chart. Oh, sweet. I didn't know the Beatles got up there that quickly. They didn't. Oh. It was the it was Telstar by the Tornadoes. So it was an instrumental song. Um, but still, it was, uh, you know, at least the foot in the door of the British invasion. Sometimes it's not the person who gets there first. Um, they are just the ones who pave the way, um, which makes me really excited to hear, you know, the Marvel Comics History podcast that comes after us that winds up becoming incredibly successful. <laughs> I think we may be uh, running on some coattails already here. <laughs> Let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the four issues uh, that we're going to be talking about. So uh, I think I'd like to do things a little bit different uh, this time. So we're rapidly approaching a point where we are going to be talking about a whole lot of Marvel comics uh, in every one of these episodes. Um, and I think the page by page, panel by panel thing is just not going to cut it. Nobody has that kind of time. <laughs> no, no. Nobody wants to listen to a four and a half hour podcast every week. Or if you do, well, we have no interest in making that. Um, so uh, I think let's give this a shot. Uh, let's go ahead and and uh, take turns just giving a brief recap of the four issues. And then uh, once we've done that, we'll sort of drill down a little deeper um, and talk about the stuff that actually mattered uh, going forward in Marvel Comics. I like it. You want to go first? Fantastic Four? Sounds great. Um, yeah, so Fantastic Four number 11. Uh, for the first time, this is a uh, two-story issue. Um, the first story is called A Visit with the Fantastic Four. Uh, the second one is called The Impossible Man. Yeah. So the first story uh, in the issue is what you'd call a day in the life uh, of the Fantastic Four. And uh, it's basically um, we see them going about their day, uh, being idolized by their fans, uh, answering some fan mail. Um, there's no fights. There's no supervillains. There's no uh, no nothing, really. It's just them hanging out um, and talking about some of the questions that they get from their readers. Uh, and this was actually specifically written um, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, uh, just so they could uh, address a lot of the questions that they were getting in their mailbags um, uh, from readers. So it's kind of cool. Um, it really you know, sort of forms that connection between uh, Marvel readers and uh, the folks who are producing the comic. Um, and it's kind of a, it's a novelty. It's a really cool little issue. Yeah, it gives, a, it gives some good backstory, too, on all characters. So it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the second story um, has the first appearance of the Impossible Man. Um, and he, the Impossible Man is an alien from the planet Pop-Up. And uh, Pop-Up is such a dangerous world uh, that... Everyone who lives there and is native to there uh, has developed the ability to instantaneously evolve to handle whatever threat might come their way. Um, so, you know, if something is trying to bite you, you might be able to instantly turn into a 
solid steel uh, being, uh, and so it breaks its teeth. The Impossible Man actually gets his name from the thing uh, who says that he's impossible. <laughs> um, but uh, Pop-Upians have no names because, quote, everyone knows who everyone is, uh, which is great. Uh, it's just this fun little absurd bit of slapstick. Uh, and he, the Impossible Man, he's not really a villain. Uh, he's basically a mischievous child uh, who doesn't really mean anyone any harm. Um, and the Fantastic Four defeat him um, after trying to do the usual superheroics. Uh, you know, none of their powers can really affect him because he can just instantly change into something that can frustrate them. Uh, so Reed, because he's the smartest man in the world, uh, he figures out that, hey, if nobody pays attention to the Impossible Man, um, the fun will wear off for him, and he will go home. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, it's a really fun, weird little issue. Um, you know, the stakes are very, very low throughout the entire thing. Uh, but I think it's also, uh, I think it's a real reader-friendly issue. Um, and it's uh, probably one of my favorite things that we read this month. Yeah, me too. I think uh, it also is just another example of the Fantastic Four solving something so, or not solving something in some cases. But this, in this case, they solve things without fisticuffs. So, yeah, it's great. You want to um, you want to talk us through uh, the Thor story in Journey into Mystery 89? I sure do. This will be much more brief. It's a one story. Uh, so the Thunder God and the Thug is the name of this. Okay, this is not not promising nope and it continues to not be promising so a gangster named thug thatcher is shot while escaping from the police and lame dr blake and jane foster are taken hostage so they're taken hostage to basically fix him you know heal up his bullet wound so thor ends up uh thor captures thatcher at a construction site when a beam made of the shoddy steel that thatcher was <laughs> forcing construction companies to buy breaks beneath him and that's pretty much how how he gets you know how this ends there's all kinds of uh normal weird over explained and under explained things in the plot and we can cover that in a little bit yeah yeah it's um it's really uh if it sounds like a mismatch uh it absolutely is it's a very it's a weird story um but yeah like you said we'll get into that in a little bit okay strange tales uh, strange tales yeah strange tales 105 the return of the wizard um so this i mean basically it does what it says on the box um the wizard escapes from prison and he challenges the torch to a fight at the wizard's house um if you remember the wizard has that crazy futuristic home um which man i really wish they had just committed to calling him frank lloyd wrong (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like a tick villain (laughs) yeah so um so yeah wizard uh busts out of jail uh challenges the torch to a fight and uh basically uh, the torch uh, accepts the challenge, uh, and with some unwanted assistance from his sister, uh, Johnny gets into and out of the wizard's traps that he's set for him. Um, he finally winds up capturing him um, and turns him over to the police uh, by the story's end. But, you know, pretty by the numbers, pretty uh, similar to their previous encounter, um, and uh, with, you know, Johnny doing a lot of his usual flaming human tricks how long was the wizard in jail like three months four months maybe i I think this is issues four months after his (laughs) yeah so not long yeah it didn't take long to get out well i will cover tales to astonish number 40 the day that ant-man failed which you know honestly arguably arguably is every day (laughs) 
Oh, Ant-Man. Oh, Ant-Man. So just quickly, the highlights. uh, A series of armored car robberies has put Howard Mitchell's company on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, Ant-Man agrees to help, but just before the next payroll shipment, he appears to come down with appendicitis and can't ride along. (laughs) So he's he's planning on getting this armored car. He says, I can't. Uh, you're going to have to go without me. My tummy hurts. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so the hijacker robs the truck as expected, but Ant-Man was just faking his illness and defeats the hijacker who was revealed to be Howard Mitchell. Gasp. Yeah. Similar to our, the, uh, what was the jeweler story too? that? Oh that yeah. Story. There's a lot of the, and that's another Ant-Man the story. Person, yeah. The yeah. person who asks for Ant-Man is essentially the guy who is, they're going to get caught at the end. Yeah. He was like the original Scooby gang. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and we should also mention that the hijacker, that's a capital H. That is the character's actual name, the hijacker. So that's our four issues. Um, and uh, when we come back from break, uh, we will go ahead and talk about what mattered about each of them uh, from this month. Let's talk about these issues uh, from the most essential to least um, and uh, just see, you know, what we thought of them, um, what stood out, what's going to matter going forward uh, in the Marvel Comics universe, um, and then uh, throw in, you know, some of the things that stood out to us uh, that we were amused by or frustrated by or anywhere in between. So I think uh, in terms of, you know, which issue mattered most, I think it's pretty clear that Fantastic Four 11 had the most stuff in it that uh, would matter going forward. The first story is literally dedicated to answering reader questions. um, So it establishes a lot of backstory, which is great. The second story uh, debuts a new supervillain or antagonist really uh, for the fantastic four. So, you know, there's a a fair amount of stuff here. That's, uh, that's pretty important. So um, yeah. Uh, What are some of the things that jumped out at you as far as uh, you know, where the story mattered well first and foremost we get to meet uh willie lumpkin who is the the mailman who we see frequently uh as the as this universe unfolds uh both i mean throughout it but mainly at the baxter building and mainly with the ff so he is um (laughs) his one superpower is wiggling his ears i know i love that so much (laughs) he asks to join up and that's that's they they lightly turn him down uh, for now. Yeah, and did you know? Um, so Willie Lumpkin was actually a character that Stanley had co-created prior to the Fantastic Four. Um, yeah, that be, being a thing. Um, in uh, <laughs> that's amazing. I know. Yeah, it's uh, it's a weird bit of trivia, um, and I was not actually aware of this until I was doing research for the uh, episode. But yeah, he created him in uh, 1960 um, as uh, a comic strip character, uh, and that was the the name of the comic is Willie Lumpkin, um, and he uh, co-created with um dan DiCarlo, who was a legendary uh, archie comics artist so um yeah so it's it's not you know it's that's non-canon uh you know as far as marvel is concerned this is the first time willie lumpkin ever shows up but uh, yeah totally so. different willie lumpkin as far as the lawyers are concerned yes exactly the trademark lawyers have their opinions <laughs> so in addition to uh, willie lumpkin's debut uh, this first uh, story in the fantastic four issue uh, also covers off on uh, reed and ben's college and wartime years so you know this is coming out in 62 so um it's you know conceivable that um you know both of these guys would have served during world war ii and they did 
Ben was a pilot, and uh, Reed uh, was working with uh, OSS, uh, working with the underground, so basically military intelligence and you know, kind of secret mission type stuff. And they were they were college roommates too. That's how they they also they first met. Yes. So the fact that uh, Ben and Reed have a, a rich history that starts to paint maybe some of the disgruntledness with ben you know ben being turned into a monster following reads this you know the origin story uh i think that this this helps to establish they've known each other for a while so so ben didn't just go on a whim he knows reed but he's he's probably got some more baggage with him uh you know over time but they both give each other great compliments about their service and 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 what they did in school as well. Yeah, and what I really like about this is it, it establishes for the first time that uh, so Ben wound up going to college on a football scholarship, um, and Reed got in, you know, because he's a genius and also the son of a millionaire, which yeah. I think is the first time that's mentioned. So, you know, that also kind of solves a couple uh, questions about how does the Fantastic Four have all this stuff? You know, it's not just because Reed has a lot of patents. It's because, you know, Reed inherited a fortune. Yeah, which is it's it at least helps it not be magical or nonsensical. Right, right. Um, and uh, it's also established uh, at this point that um, Sue Storm was literally... Uh, the girl next door to Reed growing up like they they grew up next to each other um so you know he's been sweet on her his entire life mm-hmm. the, they're living the american dream yeah with you know powers yes exactly uh it also this this was really interesting and it and it goes back to a number of things we've commented on on these first issues uh it's established <laughs> there's a letter asking you know about sue like why she is not contributing as much uh and reed and ben both come to sue's defense and and talk about how intrinsic sue is to the fantastic four uh they even you know recap a couple of places where sue came in to really help everyone out in previous issues but it's it's addressing this already which is so interesting yeah it's really good and one of the things i really liked about it is it's a a legitimately like impassioned defense like both reed and ben are very upset that there are readers who are saying that she has no place on the team that she's you know her powers are useless uh you know why is she even there reading this you know that there were definitely people who were saying that otherwise they wouldn't have brought this up and you know at times their defense is a little clunky um and it's you know very of the era but you know at the same time this is you know stan and jack planting a flag pretty firmly saying no she's part of the team she's just as important as the other three members um just shut up shut up you just you you lame little man boys yeah like the, the, the pre-internet trolls yeah yeah see, well and and that's the thing i mean the other thing that this story kind of shows us in this part of the story is that there has always been um a certain subset of marvel's fandom that has been made up of crappy dudes you know and uh it's sad it's sad that that kind of toxic fandom has always been with us and unfortunately probably always will but um i also like the fact that here you know the fantastic four is not even you know, a dozen issues old and, you know, Stan and Jack are already pushing back against it, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. This also, I mean, we've talked about this before and about, about Stan establishing that, that feedback loop with, with fans. Like this is 
long before social media <laughs> was imagined. But the letters page in a, in a comic book and the letters uh, being addressed in in what was being written is a is a pretty big deal. I mean, there were things like this in in all kinds of magazines, a boy's life or whatever, you know, but uh, and probably hunting and fishing magazines. <laughs> but to have this in this popular culture place is such a big deal. Yeah. And I, and like right on the very first page of this issue, uh, it's a mad rush uh, because the new issue of Fantastic Four has hit the stands. And so you have everyone, you know, lining up to buy it. Um, and the FF themselves are realizing it's like, well, we didn't get here in time. I guess we're just going to have to um, wait to, you know, get. Uh, our latest issue of our own comic book uh, because that's how popular it is. But yeah, to what you were just saying, there's a kid front and center on the splash page um, who's so excited. He's holding up the letters page of uh, Fantastic Four. And he's saying, hey, Charlie, look, I just got the latest copy and my letters on the fan page. You know, so this is, you know, it's this is pure fan service and it's great. Uh, one thing I have to mention yes. before we move on to Impossible Man uh, uh, in one of the letters is their first uh, unpacking their first giant bag of letters, by the way. That's the other that's the other gag here is that uh, Willie Lumpkin has a bag bigger than him that yes. he's hauling and then he has to come back with more. Yes. Uh, and Ben is so upset that he has to spend all this time or he pretends to be upset. Yeah. That, yeah but Reed calls him he's out. Like, he's like, ain't these fans got anything better to do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, but he opens this box to him and, uh, it's just, it's like a hat box size and a, <laughs> a fist comes out and punches him right in the eye on a, on a little accordion, you know, just classic cartoon style. Uh, and then he just squashes it and yells about the Yancey street gang. So, uh, again, starting to establish this thing and his connection to that part of town and, and this gang, which is always just. A hilarious running thing for the Fantastic Four. Yeah, it's great, um, and it it only gets crazier from here. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, you know, obviously the you know the last thing that really you know makes a huge impact uh, from this issue uh, is the first appearance of the Impossible Man. Um, and if you're if you're familiar with uh, 1960s comics, uh, not just Marvel comics, but especially DC comics, uh, the whole idea of having like an imp or a magical creature adversary uh, who's just kind of there to give the hero a hard time, but isn't really you know trying doesn't mean them any actual harm. Um, that's a, a you know a very uh, familiar trope to readers of the era. Um, so, you know, DC had them for almost all their major characters. Superman had Mr. Mixes Pitalik. Um, Batman had Batmite. Um, Aquaman had one called Quisp, which I, I don't think has any relation to the serial. But um, uh, Martian Manhunter had one called Zook. Uh, so, you know, this is basically the Fantastic Four's version of, uh, of these guys. Uh, and um, it's a really fun story. It's it's. It's zany. Uh, it has a real like like Warner Brothers like just cartoony slapsticky feel, uh, and it's just it's silly more than anything. Uh, there's no real danger. There's no real stakes. He's really annoying, um, and he definitely irritates them all, especially Ben. Um, but you know, it's mostly just a fun issue, um, and they're just playing around. Like Lee and Kirby just had a lot of fun with this entire issue all the way through. The other thing that's interesting is that they—that's a little different from DC too—is they they have uh, the Impossible Man in, interact with people that look so 
real. Like his first interaction is with some hobos. Yeah. And he's he wants some food and they say, You gotta give us money for food and he says, Where do I get money? And they say the bank. So he just goes to a bank and robs it. But those those hobos look like they they're drawn uh as though they could be in some, you know, illustrative uh magazine of the time just to show like the kind of clothing and how they cook you know whatever it looks pretty real and and most of the time when impossible man is interacting with these characters are these ancillary characters or these background characters it it all looks in a kirby style so you know in the real world again in in the real world for a comic book but not not in some magical place or sort of vacant area like sometimes the scenes are set uh, for DC, where they're just not fully fleshed out, and right, right. these feel like they're every scene is fully fleshed out with this insane creature wandering into it. Yeah, so it it makes it seem even more ridiculous to me. It's great. Oh, absolutely, and um, and another thing that uh, talking about Kirby's artwork in here. He he designs Impossible Man so that he can have just wildly exaggerated facial expressions. Um, and again, this just goes back to the cartooniness of this all. Um, that you know he, he can have just like super exaggerated, wide open mouth and giant eyes, or he can have like a really smug expression on his face uh, and all this. And I mean, he he looks like he just has no structure to him. Like he's just he stretches and and becomes whatever he needs to become, but from a, a storytelling perspective as well as just you know all these weird uh, things he can transform into he becomes a plastic bag bag full of water <laughs> it's like a big ball like yeah. a balloon basically just to foil the the torch at some point yes <laughs> it's hilarious uh, and there's just nothing that can stop him that's the other thing is you you come to realize very quickly that they can't stop him yeah and so there does seem there is a little bit of stakes where you're like what are they gonna do right uh but then of course they figure out to just ignore him and he'll go away yep. <laughs> exactly and uh and then the issue ends with a tease uh and you know where lee acknowledges like this is a change of pace issue um hope you liked it and uh he also teases that uh, next month it's back to normal again with a surprise-packed full-length thriller, The Fantastic Four Meet, The Hulk. Don't miss it. I'm not 100% sure on this, but is that, will next issue of The Fantastic Four be the first time that two major Marvel characters have crossed over? Uh, that, that are their own titles, for yeah. sure. Yeah. We've seen... Johnny reading the whole comic book. Right. We've seen, yeah. uh, you know, and then Namor, of course, coming back, you know, popping up from the past. Uh, but no, we haven't seen. Uh, this is the first, yeah, crossover yeah. event. So there you go. <laughs> of one comic book. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing, a uh, huge cliffhanger to end on. Um, so you can bet that, you know, the kids of the era were very excited to check that out, um, especially because, you know, you got the thing. You got the Hulk. This is what like, this is what people have already been debating at that point. Exactly. And and you know that's this is part of what the whole universe is built on here is the that interaction. So th- this is also establishing that all of these things have a continuity. So yes. you know we've talked about it being established as the real world or the real New York and having Doom pop into the Marvel office and all that stuff. Yeah. But this is uh, where we realize that. You know, Rick Jones and and Bruce Banner are in the same exact universe and world as the Fantastic Four. Do you want to uh, take 
take us through strange tales and uh, just mention uh, some of the stuff that winds up being important going forward on that? Sure, yeah. So one of the main things that's great for all of us is Johnny's apparent secret identity is gone. Oh, thank God. <laughs> it's so insane that he's he's in some cases walking around with his sister who's in costume and he's still maintaining some sort of secret identity as he goes to high school and lives maybe alone or with her. In, I don't know. Yeah. It's just nonsense. So they there's no mention of it in this issue at all it's just he and sue calls him johnny in front of the wizard even so yeah. you know it's they they may be just <laughs> quietly sweeping that under the rug um and then it's the wizard the wizard's back already so he's being established as a as a real villain at least right now as an a-list villain uh because he's he's, he's appeared twice in 11 issues yeah. or he's a and not so many he's he's appeared twice in like five issues yeah right? of the so, torch of solo yeah. stuff yeah mm-hmm. so uh that that really establishes him as something that probably will keep going in this universe yeah yeah um and uh you know he's still just basically smart guy with a fancy house um you know so he hasn't kind of later on he winds up getting a, like a suit of armor and becomes basically like a, a technology villain um he hasn't gotten to that point yet, but yeah, I mean, definitely villains in the Marvel Universe are kind of slim pickings at this point, um, but yeah, the Fantastic Four characters have encountered villains who we've never seen again, like, you know, the Miracle Man or um, the guy from Planet X, Kurgo, yeah. um, you know, so, but uh, the wizard made the cut, um, and he winds up uh, um, coming back. Uh, there's also a lot of, I mean, on the on the cons side of this there's a a lot more of the sort of bizarre johnny powers so Mm -hmm. him him making a a decoy he does this quite a bit but he he makes a decoy that stands in his room to to fake sue out as he leaves to go uh to go take the wizard up on his challenge so um there's also the fact that this is just almost the same story again from the last time they met it's yeah, wizard sure. traps johnny in the house um although this in this case sue doesn't really help you know she kind of hinders by showing up yeah. uh johnny might have pulled it off on his own he seemed to be doing some smart things and as opposed to the last time mm-hmm. where sue was had to show up in order to save his bacon uh-huh. well actually his bacon was just his secret identity was going to be revealed i think so there's no bacon never mind there was never <laughs> the bacon is a lie um yeah and and uh also worth mentioning is that uh neither reed nor ben uh says that they're going to help out johnny um basically they like and, and the logic for why they don't help him out is kind of weird so johnny here's the wizard's challenge he wants to go face the wizard uh sue's just like no let the police deal with him um and then johnny takes off uh sue calls reed and ben um and she says you got to help him and reed says no johnny has to grow up and stand on his own two feet sometime the thing and i won't interfere in this so it's this weird that first of all super out of character for reed to just kind of be like this macho like guy tough love time yeah yeah but also like the wizard broke out of prison like he did a criminal thing you know he's he's he has you know faced he is a super villain that's the fantastic four's job is to like when people like that break the law they aid 
law enforcement in capturing them. So it makes no sense except for the fact that this is supposed to be a solo Human Torch story, but it's just a, like a really lame, weird way of getting. Yeah, to I it. think it's an awkward way too of of having a one panel cameo of of the the rest of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. So just having been just to remind everyone they're in this other comic. Uh, Product placement. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't know that it's really worth getting into, you know, sort of like the traps and the counter traps and things like that. But, you know, it's basically like, long story short, um, you know, the wizard captures Sue. Uh, Johnny helps her bust out. Um, when they escape, uh, he captures the wizard, turns him over to the police. Um, and uh, that's pretty much that. I, yeah, I'd say the only, the only, I said this already, though. Uh, he, Johnny shows some ingenuity. He doesn't show normally in solving those problems and breaking out yeah yep for sure uh we're kind of getting down into the slim pickings now um <laughs> but uh, as far as um issues that still um that made a lasting impact on the marvel universe uh i guess the third place finisher uh this week has to be uh, tales to astonish number 40 uh the ant-man story um really just because uh it's the first appearance of the hijacker um this this really like you know very very little thought put into this is like the definition of a d-list uh marvel villain um he does show up a couple more times um really does not it will not shock you to hear he does not have much of a career um uh but he does appear a very few more times um and unfortunately for the hijacker uh he winds up meeting well he he meets one of two grizzly ends and the continuity is not clear on this so um uh in the 80s uh in a captain america storyline he's uh murdered with a bunch of other like d-list supervillains by scourge in the bar with no name um and uh so like that's where i remember him uh meeting his maker um and then you know when i was doing a little bit of research for the episode uh i find out that he does come back um in another story in a venom story a few years after that um and venom bites his head off <laughs> he wants to eat his brains that's what you do yeah yeah not a super well thought through villain uh he, even his demise is not that well thought through or yeah. permanent like nobody will remember him we can bring him back to have his head bitten off yeah so you know runs a, a failing armored car business uh and then when that doesn't turn out becomes a lame super villain who gets murdered in one of two ways uh that we're not quite clear but uh, if you keep listening to this podcast for about 13 or 14 more years, um, we'll finally get to the bottom of what happens to the hijacker. So definitely uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe uh, and uh, just keep listening every week so that we keep doing this. Yeah, we'll all grow old together. The uh, The other thing that that's <laughs> astonishing uh, is uh, the usual nonsensical Ant-Man things where some things he does are... They don't make any sense, but are over-explained, and some things are not explained at all, and yep. they also don't make any sense. Yep. He's always, like, jumping on an ant to get somewhere. I'm like, dude, you can just be normal-sized and get a cab. Yeah, or, you know? ride a bike. Just walk. You're going to go pretty fast. Uh, so that's it's always weird to see him. The, my favorite one, though, to cover is when he he feigns appendicitis so that he's not going to be on this armored car right so that he's he's cueing the the villain to know that they they can attack and then he secretly gets back on the armored car 
not by just shrinking and like crawling up under a bumper or something, you know, or whatever. Right. He he does like this. Uh, he he runs away. Uh, he has an ant carry him to a nearby alley where he, he had set up a simple catapult, and then he has that catapult, which is like a rubber band on some boards yeah. and a stack of wooden blocks. Um, shoot him to. This is the weirder part. A tiny model plane that he has hidden on a building so that he can jump into the model plane that is filled up with gas and apparently can be piloted by a small person and fly that plane to land on top of the armored car and then prepare for the rest of the story. And then he turns the crank, which (laughs) kicks the shoe, which sends the marble down the run. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely bizarre. And that's not even the first time he catapults himself in this issue. Like, he uses the Ant-Man antipult or whatever, like, you know. Uh, and actually, that's we'll get to this when we're talking about favorite panels. But he launches himself, and it leads to, like, one of the most, I think... I think Kirby meant it to be hilarious, and I'm not sure Larry Lieber necessarily did. Um, but it, it, there's there's a funny sequence that plays out, and I'll get to it when we're talking about our our, our final like panels uh, of the month. It's um, awesome, but yeah, just, it's a great four panels. Yeah, yeah, that's what we call a tease in the business. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, all, all your your usual favorites uh, are in the Ant Man story, the Antipult uh, landing a pile of ants, his ant telepathy network. So you know, I mean, n- none of these are any more awesome than they were, you know, the first time or two that we saw them. But I, this is, I guess, they're establishing some kind of weird Ant Man mythology. Like this is this is what he does and he overcomplicates things to solve problems that yeah. he created yes yeah oh yeah man <laughs> all right um okay journey into mystery yeah, let's so- this the thing that the comic that mattered the least it is the double bronze winner of this week yeah so what mattered nothing <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's literally there's nothing that matters about this issue um and i hate saying that because you know Look, even the worst comic is it's the result of just, you know, hundreds of hours of labor from the people who wrote it and penciled it and inked it and colored it and lettered it and, you know, printed it and, you know, distributed it. And, you know, I'm sure when this came out, there was some kid out there and this was their favorite issue of, you know, comics that they'd read. You know, this was someone's first issue of a comic, but... All that being said, like none of this matters. Like, yeah, if even this... compared to the other things this month, you can tell it is subpar. Yes, yeah. that's, that's a bummer. Nothing that happens in this issue has any repercussions going forward uh, in the Marvel universe at all. Um, Thug Thatcher, uh, the villain of the piece, is he's just a gangster. He's just a generic gangster, and he never shows up again. Uh, I think maybe it, you can. There's one scene of of Thor, or I think maybe in this case. Uh, lame Dr. Blake asking Odin again, praying to Odin for some help. Right. Mm. And Odin. So Odin shoots down. <laughs> this is another Rube Goldberg moment, but he shoots down a lightning bolt uh, to knock a gun out of the hand of a thug, not the thug, but right. another thug uh, so that he, he, <laughs> that lame Dr. Blake can reach his cane yeah. and then change into Thor in front of people, which he's always worried about until he does it. So I, it's just another weird thing. Yeah, there's so many just 
ridiculous, convoluted, inconsistent attempts by Blake to protect his secret identity. Like at one point, he he dresses up a mannequin in a Thor costume <laughs> yeah. and like throws it across the skyline so that no one will think it's suspicious when he shows up in his office right after he was just seen flying by as Thor. So like he throws this dummy to make it look like Thor is flying away. And then, and then he sneaks into his office as Thor and then changes back. Yeah, that's the coup de gras. <laughs> it's just like, it really, it makes very, very, very little sense. Um, so, you know, there's that. And then the other thing that just, uh, I, I just, just hate so much about these early Thor comics is, <laughs> It's just the worst love triangle in comics is Jane Foster and Thor and lame Dr. Blake. Like, you know, it's like she's got a crush on Thor, but she really has a crush on Dr. Blake. And she wishes that he would ask her to be his girlfriend. And and he has a crush on her, but he won't do anything because he doesn't believe that she could love him because he's lame. And like it's I mean, it's like. The worst version of like the Betty and Veronica and Archie triangle. Yeah, and and this kind of story, you know, it's a triangle. It plays out a lot of times, and in the Marvel universe, it plays out too. It just plays out a lot better when it's Peter Parker and insert love interest and Spider Man. Right. Uh, it's also just works better than this super awkward thing yeah. that they have. Uh, yeah, and and I mean. You know, okay, so it's the 1960s. Female characters are not going to have a ton of agency to begin with, but there's literally nothing to Jane Foster except for the fact that she's in love with Dr. Blake, she has a crush on Thor, she gets kidnapped by the bad guy. Yeah. Like, and that's literally all her character is. Like, up until this point, you know, we're what, half a dozen issues into Journey into Mystery Thor, and like, she just, she's given nothing to do. Um, and it's just, you know, it's weak. It's lame. They make up for it decades later. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point, I don't know. I, I try not to, you know, read 1960s comics with, you know, 21st century eyes. But come on, man. Even in the 60s, like, especially when this is the same month as you have, you know, a page and a half being in the Fantastic Four issue being devoted to, hey, you know, Sue is just as important as the boys on this team, you know cut her some slack and then to you know you get this it's just yeah like just read your brother's script flurry yeah. like you know <laughs> i don't know uh uh sorry larry yeah sorry. i know i know yeah i know you did a lot of con- you established a lot of this universe larry and just that you know these early ones are uh, they're hard we've heard the early episodes of our own podcast we know that it takes a little while to get up and rolling yeah. <laughs> I guess we should put on that hat before we uh, before we criticize Larry too much. It's it's not like we're not we weren't winging it a lot when we started this. Yeah, I can also say, speaking of that, that we started trying this. I found a uh, a couple years before we've got to anything real. We tried one, just winging it, putting yeah. setting up some mics. It was horrible oh it was terrible it, it was uh unlistenable nonsense <laughs> uh <laughs> from two nervous guys who didn't know what they were doing so uh you know that's not, our brand <laughs> not that we're uh not that we're doing it all great now but we're we're getting better yes every day in every way stick with us and grow old with us that's going to be my my ask of our <laughs> listeners <laughs> 
So, panel of the month. What? So, get, getting back to it, you teased this one. You gotta, you've got to unveil. Yeah, I got to do it. So, uh, mine uh, again. It comes from Tales to Astonish number forty, the Ant Man story. So, this is page four. Uh, my the panel I chose was the first one, but really uh, the first four panels are just gold. So, um, on the the last panel of the previous page, uh, Ant Man has just loaded himself into his antipult and uh, fired himself, and so he's soaring through the air. And the <laughs> this panel, this first panel on page four, uh, he just narrowly avoids taking out a duck, and like the duck is like, what the. And he's like on its back and legs straight up in the air and his mouth is open. Um, what I love about this is like it's such a ridiculous uh, like visually it is hilarious. Like it's really funny to look at. The script does not play along with the joke. So it, it says all it says on there is the controls are adjusted. The release button is triggered and I'm on my way. Boom. But like there's no. There's, there's nothing like sorry duck or anything like that like just pay off that joke no it's so it's obvious i mean maybe it's not obvious but in my mind kirby is just like this is just the dumbest thing and he just made it as silly as it really is uh and that was his way of you know kind of registering his uh, ridiculousness with the whole thing but um but then uh yeah uh, and maybe this is also related to that so uh the next three panels um ant-man is you know flying as usual toward a giant pile of ants which is going to cushion his fall as he just plows <laughs> into them uh but uh he overshot uh, and he's about to head toward a brick wall but don't worry the ants scramble up the wall so he can crash into them there into fewer ants which i assume is just gory but they don't really show that we yeah. cut i apparently he, he says it's like landing on a cushion of air or something yeah, yeah. uh so i guess that it, it all works out ants are strong I guess I don't don't I don't even want to try to wrap my brain around. No, it. they're just I don't know. They're like just bags of goo for him to crash into. I do love that duck though. <laughs> I feel like you need a T-shirt of that. I was gonna say, man, if we get into the just you know, if we turn into one of those shady T-shirt companies that just steals other people's IP, like we're definitely just gonna make that into a shirt. No one will know. <laughs> it also has the sound effect of boom. Ah, oh, it's great. Yep. Okay, what's your uh, panel of the month? Okay, mine is similarly goofy. Uh, it is, uh, I mentioned this before when we were talking about Fantastic Four number 11, page four, panels three through six, so another sequence. Yep. Um, this is where Thing opens that that hat box, gets <laughs> gets the accordion boxing glove in the face, whap, and then, uh, and then just destroys the whole box and get, you know, whatever, the gizmo that's in there. So... Um, it's just a beautiful, you could take all of the, he thinks it's going to be a cake. And so he's super excited when he opens the box, by the way, he <laughs> says, I hope it's something to eat. I'm starving. Uh, and then he, you know, he immediately thinks it's probably the Yancey street gang, but just those three panels of him looking in the box, opening it, that glove coming out and hitting him in the eye. And then him like, airborne as he's been stomping on the box like yes. he's already jumped on it at least once and there's just stuff particles flying out it's a beautiful piece of like kirby storytelling yeah. in three panels and, it's, and his his stomping is like yosemite sam throwing a tantrum yeah it's so good the thing losing his cool is just 
one of the best things ever uh, in in Fantastic Four comics. Like he's just he's so much fun to rile up and just like 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 just wind him up and let him go. Let him destroy a building. Yep. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. That brings us to the end uh, of episode number twelve. We've done an even dozen of these things, um, and. Next episode is going to be uh, pretty crazy. We've got almost twice as many issues to get through. Um, and uh, we're going to meet uh, one new major Marvel character. Um, we're going to see the return of uh, a very big uh, Marvel character who we haven't seen in a little while. Um, and I am really looking forward to it. And we get the crossover, the the Fantastic Four meet the Hulk. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, hope you will tune in. Um, thank you so much for listening. As always, uh, I'm still Brian Stratton. And I remain Rob Milne. And we will see you next week for next month. Yeah.